0: Thank you for tuning in to Stepping Stones of Faith. Stepping Stones of Faith is a ministry of Claytonville United Brethren Church. Our service times are as follows. Sunday morning Sunday school starts at 9.30 a.m. Sunday morning worship starts at 10.30 a.m. If you would like to join us for any of these services, our address is 106 Elizabeth Street, Claytonville, Illinois, 60926. We hope to see you this morning. Amos chapter 4, page 786 in the Red Bible, 786 in the Red Bible, Amos chapter 4, and this was the second pronouncement of punishment to the children of Israel, specifically regarding the sinful women of Israel. So, verse 1 Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor and crush the needy, who say to their husbands, Bring us something to drink. That's kind of harsh. Hear this word, you cows. It's kind of harsh. Now, Amos was not trained as a prophet. He was a simple herdsman and farmer. When he wanted to get to the, the point across to the indulgent women to the indulgent women of Israel, he called them fat cows. The area of Bashan in the northern part of Israel, the modern-day Golan Heights, was known for producing fat and healthy livestock. So he was calling them fat cows. It's kind of harsh, isn't it? We say that today and we think it's kind of funny to people, but he's saying it back then, you fat cows. But nonetheless, it was, it was for being mean. It was meanness. It was... His getting his point across, stopping them short in their thinking. Psalm twenty-two, twelve mentions the strong bulls of Bashan. Ezekiel thirty-nine, eighteen mentions the large livestock, the fatlings of Bashan. It's no, no, no exaggeration to say that Amos calls these women fat cows. Though it is true that the very skinny ideal of female beauty is a modern phenomenon and especially in ancient times plumpness was a valued sign of affluence. We can count on it as count on it that that at no time in human history has a woman appreciated being called a fat cow. I don't know I wouldn't think anybody anybody here be appreciated being called a fat cow. Although the commentator was right, the, in other cultures, if even to in the 20th century, if, if a woman or a man was larger, heavier set, it was a, it was a sign of affluence or a sign of, of abundance because he they they, they ate good, you know? Or if the man and the woman were both heavy set, then he ate good and she cooked good, you know, so it was. It was a. It was considered a blessing. This the sarcastic epithet of cows of Bashan seems to refer both to the luxury that the wealthy women enjoyed, and to the certain voluptuousness of the and sensuality which their extravagant lifestyle afforded them. This is from a commentator named Hubbard. So his, he was being sarcastic, but it was kind of a slam at their extravagance. The prophet here represents the iniquitous, opulent, idle, lazy drones, whether men or women, under the idea of fatted bullocks, fatted bullocks which were shortly to be led out to slaughter now slothness the bible talks about slothness and even today they talk about even in for health reasons they say you should be out moving don't have a don't have a solitary lifestyle i need to get moving okay but we're not to be um, idle The Bible talks about an idle mind is the devil's playground. With an idle mind becomes an idle body. With an idle body becomes heavy setness and with that health problems. But so, but in these days it was considered an affluence to be able to be heavier set. And laziness in any form is not a good thing. Laziness of mind leads laziness of body. Idleness of mind leads idleness in body. So we need to understand to be active in body, we've got to be active in the mind. And when we're idle, he says the commentator said that the fatted bullocks which were shortly sled out led to be slaughtered. When we are idle, idle, devil's playground kind of thing, that is where we lead ourselves to danger because we're not active in the Lord. A commentator, Makronsky, says, these women may not have been directly involved in mistreating the poor, but they're... Incessant demands of luxuries drove their husbands to greater injustices. You ever want to please your significant other, right? Make sure she has what she needs or he has what he needs. and Please them. Whatever it takes. This is what's happening here. They had so many desires and wants that their husband had, husbands had to be in just, do in just things in order to provide for these women. So Amos is directing his prophecy toward those women, not only the women, but their attitudes. David complains of, of the strong bulls of Bashan in Psalm twenty-two twelve but those he might better deal with than these cursed cows of Bashan. (laughs) Boy, he really had a way of dealing with this. Now, last part of this verse, who say to their husbands, bring wine and let us drink. It wasn't that these women were plump and affluent It was that they used their affluence in the pure, self-focused pursuit of pleasure. God saw this and promised to hold them to account. Now, this deals with more than just, like he said, plumpness, but it's in the mind. They felt like they deserved, they, they were entitled to having all of these things. In 2023, we have that as a big thing, It's an entitlement. So many people defraud the government because they feel entitled to getting paid for being uh, having kids and doing things, and they, they're entitled to that. They're entitled to, to food stamps. They're entitled to government money. They're entitled to all these things because that's the, that's the way we are raising kids now. The work ethic is down. Can't find anybody to work. I went to a store recently and I was looking for something for the house. And I waited in line, waited at a department for 35 minutes before anybody even came over. And then when I went to check out, there was one person to check out in the whole store. The whole store, one person. And I asked them about that. I said, why is there only, why only you? We can't get anybody to work. But yet they're entitled. Same with these people here. They felt entitled to all these things. What happens when we feel entitled? We are entitled to feeling what? Not feeling stress. We're not entitled to feeling uh, turmoil, no, we're entitled, entitled to feeling pleasure. We have all this money. That's pleasurable, isn't it? How pleasurable is it when you get your income tax money? Woo! got all this money. When you, have, when you claim kids, you get more, so it's kind of cool. But the thing about that is, that's temporal. And when you don't file, or when you don't have things, and you feel entitled to it, it's pleasurable when you get it for free. And so these women were getting their things for free. And their husbands were having to commit injustices to bring them to their wives. And God was going to bring judgment upon them for their attitude. Don't we think that it's possible that God is judging our nation because of the lack of, of work ethic, and desire to do things among those who live here. Not just women, but men as well. We're entitled. We feel like we can have what we want, when we want. All we got to do is petition the government. We don't have to put anything into it. We just petition the government, and the government provides for us. Don't you think God's getting a little bit upset with us because we feel that entitlement and we're not trusting him and we're not trusting in his word, but we're trusting in the government, we're trusting in man? This is what was happening here. They were trusting in their husbands, not trusting in God. Verses two and three. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness: Indeed, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with hooks; the last one of you with fish hooks. You will go out through the breached walls, every one straight ahead of her. You will be exiled, exiled to Harmon, says the Lord. This is an exceedingly solemn and sure oath. God's holiness is core to his very being. And so here God swore by his own existence. Now, what does God say? Be ye holy, for I am holy. He was viewing these women and what their husbands were having to do as unholiness. And therefore judgment was going to come. And so today when we have this idea that we can push our way into getting things that we feel entitled to without working, without doing what God wants us to do, that too is unholiness. We need to do what God is calling us to do. When we walk in the ways of the world and we and we rely on man, we rely on getting things without work, we're getting things without any putting anything into it, God views that as unholiness, and therefore judgment does come. When he swore by his holiness in Amos 4 2, he guaranteed that the judgment would come in reality because the, the holy God does not lie, nor can he, His holiness allow sin to go unpunished. So, His judgment was going to come in reality. They were going to feel it. They were going to endure it. They were going to go through it in reality. It wasn't just words. It was more than that. It was his judgment. He was going to see it through. We do that with kids, don't we? How often can you sit there and say, well, you stop doing that or I'm going to go over there. Stop doing that or I'm going to go over there. Sooner or later, you're going to have to go over there and do something. So that punishment has to happen in reality for children, as well as for God toward us. God is patient with us. But sooner or later, he's going to come over there. He's going to come over there. And he was going to come over there with these women and these men. Better knock it off. I'm going to come over there. He'd had enough. I'm coming over there. You're driving the car with your parents and they say, don't make me pull this car over. Boy, you didn't want mom, if dad pulled the car over, you better, you best just hope and pray he doesn't turn around and hit you. Sometimes that was enough to scare you quiet, but sometimes dad would turn around and hit you. Follow through. God was following through. He will take you away with fishhooks. God told unrepentant Israel of their coming agony when they would be conquered and exiled to the Assyrians. When the Assyrians depopulated and exiled a conquered community, they led the captives away on journeys of hundreds of miles with their captives naked and attached together with a system of strings and fishhooks piercing through their lower lip. God would make sure they were led into, in this humiliating manner through the broken walls of their conquered cities. They would thoroughly, he, he, this would thoroughly humble the fat cows of Israel. So think about that for a moment. How humiliating is that? We think about that in Scripture. We, we know that in Scripture, when the woman that's caught in adultery, they did not say, get some clothes on, we're going to see Jesus. They didn't do that. They didn't bring her through the alleyways where no one saw it. They picked her up out of the room, dragged her out, no clothes on. Where did they bring her? Through the highways and the most populated areas and they dragged her to Jesus. Why? Humiliation. Why was crucifixion the way it was? Humiliation. Jesus was not crucified with a tunic on. As we would say, as we would see in today's modern uh, depictions of that, he was naked. Why? Humiliation. Why did God allow them to be led through these broken walls, naked? Humiliation. Judgement. They were attached together, so all of them were. In judgment, to humble them. Why would God do that? Why would God say in Romans 1 he was going to leave them to their own debauchery or their own filthy minds? Why would he say that? In the hopes that they would go back to him. That's what this humility was about. It wasn't about killing them. It was about bringing them to the place of going back to him. And God does that every day with us today. Brings us into places that we would go back to him. Verses 4 and 5. Come to Bethel and transgress. To Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes every three days. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering. Announce your voluntary offerings loudly. For so you love to do, O children of Israel, says the Lord God. Because the kings of Israel did not want their people to go to the southern kingdom of Judah and sacrifice at Jerusalem, they set up rival centers of worship in the cities like Bethel and Gilgal. They offered sacrifices at these places supposedly to the Lord, but because, they, because of their offering wasn't made in obedience to God, it was only a transgression. See, that's important to understand. We are to do what God has called us to do. Not what we think we should do for God. God might tell you to do something. You think, well, I don't want to do that. I'll do this for God. That's transgression. It's hard to hear, but it's transgression. You think, well, I'm still doing something for God. Yes, but you're not doing what God called you to do. He called them to sacrifice in Jerusalem. They didn't want to do that. They did over in Gilgal and Bethel. But that isn't what God wanted. So it was transgression. So we transgress every time God says, do this. And we say, well, I'm not comfortable with that. I'll do this. We transgress. And that's when God says, when we say, when we go, when it says in Scripture where where Jesus said or God said, many will say, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Because they think they're doing what God wants them to do, but they're not because they're not doing what God has called them to do. They're doing what they think God wants them to do. I don't want to do that, God. I want to go over here. I don't want to talk to that person. I want to go do this instead. I don't want to go, I don't want to minister here. I want to go over here. Why? Because it's easier. It's transgression. He will say to you, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Lord, Lord, didn't we call out demons in your name? Didn't we, didn't we do this? Didn't we, depart from me. I never knew you. Because they didn't do what he wanted them to do. They were transgressing. Your tithes every three days. There was a tithe that was to be brought every three day, every three years. In Deuteronomy fourteen twenty eight. Amos says, even if you were to bring your tithes every three days, it would not matter because it only, because it only be an outlaw, outward show. So, that brings, how, why do we do what we do? We think about that. Why do we do what we do? Why do we come to church? Really? Some people go to church out of convenience. I knew a guy. It was a teacher in high school. He grew. He grew up um, Lutheran, I think. Then he moved somewhere, and the closest church was Methodist. So it was convenient for him to be, be Methodist. So he was Methodist, right? He didn't think about what God called me to do. He just thought, well, this is the closest church. Let's go here. And I've thought about the idea of, well, if I ever, if God ever called me out of Claytonville and I wanted to go to church somewhere, I'd go to church down the street in Sheldon because that's the closest church. No. I need to do what God wants me to do. And God right now is saying, stay in Claytonville. So that's what I'm doing. And as I do that... I am making sure that I am doing what God wants me to do. So, what do we do? Why do we do what we do? He's saying if you 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 could bring your ties every three days and it wouldn't matter. You know why? Because it's an outward show. It's not got any heart with it. It doesn't have any any uh, desire for God. It's just here's what I have to do. So, why do we go to church? Oh, because it's Sunday. No, 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 no. Would you go to church if it was Monday? Would you go to church if it was Saturday? And Sunday? And Wednesday? Or would you say, that's too much. I go on Sunday. It's what God wants us to do. And he's saying here, God wants, uh, wants them to know to know. That outward showings with no heart behind it is still transgression. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. Only one offering in Israel included leaven. The wave offering made on the day of Pentecost. Here the prophet either refers to this one offering or to mock their corrupt sacrifices. He suggests that He suggests they brought offerings polluted by leaven. So, unleavened bread is what they were required to eat. They couldn't have leaven in it. So by saying that, he was saying their offering wasn't pure. Their offerings are not pure. He was mocking them. Their offerings were not pure. So what are our offerings? When we think about... Why we do what we do, and we think, well, I'm, I go to church on Sunday because it's Sunday. And that's what I always did. But why do you go? Do you go? Do you come to church? Do you go to church because you want to hear about God? You have a very dynamic, exciting preacher that's preaching on Amos. No, that's not why. It should be because you you sit and you say, God, what do you have for me today? What are you going to say through? T- to me through a broken down old guy at the front. You say God, what are you going to say to me through that? I might not get anything out of it, but what are you what are you going to get what are you going to give me through it? That's why you go to church. Not because it's tradition, but it's relationship. For this you love, part of the scripture. The children of Israel loved their corrupted worship. It was disobedient, both in heart and in action. But they loved it. it, it it's always wrong to measure worship by how it uh, pleases us. Because it is possible for corrupt and disobedient worship to be wonderfully pleasing. So this reminds us of today's worship. Not today, today, but 2023 worship. You have churches that have mega stages with seven, seven people bands and six people singing and boy, they sing the latest Christian music and boy, they just move, they just rally you up and you love it, it's so good. But is it really? What do you feel when you leave that place? Do you feel like God touched you or do you feel like you want to go back and hear more because it's so good? When we leave worship, when we leave church, no matter how it's done, whether a CD player or a full band, we should leave empowered by God to go and do the work of God. That's how we should leave. God, let's do something. Let's go. That's what we, That's why we need to feel. Of course, we do not want to get into a, the thinking that worship must hurt or be unpleasant to be holy and acceptable. That isn't the point. The point is, that we, do don't, we don't first measure worship by how it makes us feel. We measure it, how, measure it by how it honors God. And how we react is the direct correlation of how it honors God. If we leave fired up to do the work of God, then that honors God. If we leave fired up to say, oh, that was a great song, I'm going to go find it on YouTube and I'm going to get the lyrics and I'm going to learn how to sing it. That doesn't honor God. When a worship message or a worship music leaves us stirred to go talk to people about Jesus, when worship stirs us to pray for our unsaved loved ones and friends, when worship stirs us to the foot of Jesus Christ, that is when it is honoring God. Verses 6 through 8. Though I gave you cle- clean- cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of food in all your ha- places, yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there, was, when there were still three months to, to the harvest. I would send rain on, on one town and send no rain on another town. One field would receive rain, but the other field without rain would wither. So two or three towns wandered to one town to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. He was pronouncing judgment in the hopes that they would return to him and he could restore them. But yet they did not. They were comfortable in their sin. They were comfortable in blaming God for their circumstances. God's forgotten about us. Let's go over here and drink their water. God's forgotten about us. Let's go over there and eat their food. Do we ever stop to think maybe when God does those things it's about us? And not about God. Maybe God's trying to tell us something. But yet when God, when we think God forgets us, boy, we're going to tell God all about it. But maybe it's not about us. Maybe it's about what God's trying to tell us. You need to turn back to me. You need to follow me. You need to get back into my word. You need to get back into prayer. You need to be repentant. Do we ever stop to think maybe God is trying to tell us something when these things happen? Because Israel seems to have enjoyed financial prosperity when Amos preached, this was probably set in the prophetic present. Future events spoken of in the present tense. God would be so humble, the prosperous Israel, that their clean teeth would not be made dirty by food. Because there would be no food to eat in the drought God would send. So they would have no food. God was not telling them, I've given you clean teeth, you should be able to be Grateful for that, he was saying, "I've given you have clean teeth. They're not going to be dirtied by food. They're not. You're not going to have anything in your mouth to dirty them." I made it rain in one city. I, wither, I I withheld rain from another city. God made the provision of rain so specific they would know it from know it was from His hand. Yet the message did not get through to them. Interesting. God was giving them knowledge here. They couldn't deny that God was withholding things from them. They couldn't deny that God was judging them. Yet they continued in their sin. Yet they continued in their debauchery, in their stubbornness. How often are we stubborn? We're stubborn people, let's just admit it. Human beings, not just those here, not just you guys here, but human beings are stubborn people. After all, Paul called people stiff-necked people, stubborn people. Clark says this, to prove to them that this rain did not come fortuitously, Or of necessity, God was pleased to make these most evident distinctions. One city had rain and could fill all of its tanks and cisterns, while a neighboring city had none. In these instances, a particular providence was most evident. God was judging certain people. God was judging certain people. One city had rain, another one not. Drought. Judgment, and yet they did not go back. Interesting. Verse 9 through 11. I stuck you with blight and mildew, locusts devoured your many gardens and vineyards. Your fig trees and olive trees, yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. Pestilence like that of Egypt I sent against you. By the sword I killed your young men. Your horses were taken captive. The stench of your camps I brought up into the, to your nostrils, yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. I destroyed some of you as God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, you were like a firebrand plucked out of the fire. Yea, you did not return to me, says the Lord. He brought judgment like that of Israel, and their reaction was like that of Israel. So, how sinful, or I mean, Egypt, excuse me, he brought judgment on them just like Egypt. And their reaction was like Egypt. So, how dark and how far away were they from God? And they did not recognize the judgment of God on their lives. Pharaoh didn't recognize God, and he perished. He said in this scripture, I destroyed some of you like I destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, and yet you did not return to me. makes you wonder why. Why would they not recognize God's movement in their lives? Why would they not recognize that? Because they were hard-hearted and stubborn and stiff-necked, and they were comfortable in their sin. I blasted you, the locusts devoured, I sent you a plague, I made the stench of your camps come up to your nostrils, because Israel would not listen to the chastisement of the Lord. His hand grew more and more heavy upon them. This wasn't a demonstration of God's anger, but of his love. Isn't that interesting? Some people would say, well, God was angry with them, but no, God was showing his love. Why? because he in the hopes that he would come back to them he starts his chastisement slow and increases it incrementally so that God can use the smallest amount of discipline necessary to turn the hearts back to him same thing he did with Pharaoh and Pharaoh did not respond he started off small didn't he? The very last plague was the firstborn of everything. Pharaoh's son died. And yet Pharaoh did not turn to God. And he's saying, he, you, I did all this, and yet you did not return. If we will not turn back, the hand of chastisement will grow heavier and heavier out of loving desire to see our repentance. Just like Pharaoh, he did not repent either. Blight is the work of the east wind that dries and scorches the, the grain prematurely so that it turns brown. Mildew is the product of parasitic worms which turn pale the, the tips of green grain. So he was destroying their crops and they still did not turn to him. You are like a firebrand plucked from the burning yet you have not returned to me. God saw Israel as a glowing ember plucked from the fires of judgment. Like the same judgment that consumed Sodom and Gomorrah, even though God spared them, they did not respond in gratitude. They have not returned to God. You know, God spares us in so many ways. Makes you wonder why some people that are Christians die young and some people that are non Christians and they're real hateful and they're real, they're detestable people and they live forever and ever, amen? And God doesn't take their lives, but they're in judgment. Some people live in prisons and forever and ever, it seems like. But yet they don't turn to God and God is saying, I'm not taking you, I'm sparing you, so you turn to me. God says the same thing to uh, to these people and to us today. I don't take you away because I want to spare you. I don't bring judgment like I did on Sodom and Gomorrah to you because I want to spare you. You see, God wants to spare us. Because he loves us. It seems harsh. You know, the Old Testament is a, portrays a vengeful God and the New Testament portrays a loving God, but he's, he's still loving. He just wants us to go back to him. Last two verses. Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel... And because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel, the one who forms the mountains and creates the wind, who reveals his thoughts to man, who turns the darkness into dawn and strides on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. This was a sober warning Appropriate for all men at all times because we never know when we will meet our God in eternity. Because we do not know when, we must always be prepared to meet our God. But this is especially true for those facing judgment, the judgment of God. We must always be prepared. Those who, blessed are those who endure to the end. That's what the Bible says. We must always be prepared to meet our God. That's why we have to have a heart of repentance. We have to have a heart of, of wanting to know God and do His work and spend time with Him and spend time in His Word. We can apply this text in three ways. Prepare to meet God is a challenge. How do you prepare? You train, right? You, you run a marathon, you gotta prepare for it, so you train. You run and you, you be, and you build your stamina up. It's a challenge to be prepared to meet God. It is an invitation to meet God. God is extending his hand of invitation. Prepare to meet your God. And it is a summons. You are required to meet your God. So be prepared. As a challenge, God invites his enemies to prepare to meet him. A boxer, a boxer prepares long and hard before stepping into the ring against the, a against the champion. If you are going to step into the ring with God, you had better prepare. The prophet may be understood as in, as in irony, challenging the proud rebels to meet in arms the God whom they have despised. Let them prepare for, to fight it out with him who have made to, be to their, made to be their enemy, and against whose laws they have so continually revolted, Charles Spurgeon. It's a challenge. We must prepare. As an invitation, this is a blessing. The summons, prepare to meet your God, was nothing but a blessing to Adam. Ever since the fall of it, our nature to hide from God, so the call, prepare to meet your God, has a different sense entirely. Still, we, have, we, will, we will come to, to God, we must prepare ourselves. As a summons, we recognize that one day all will stand before God and give account. Think a while upon who it is that you have to meet. You must meet your God, your God that is offended judgment, that is offended justice. You must meet those whose laws you have broken, whose penalties you have ridiculed. Justice, righteously and indignant, with his with its sword drawn, you must confront. You must meet your God. That is, you must be examined by unblinded omniscience. He who has seen your heart and read your thoughts and jotted down your affections and remembered your idle words, you must meet him, and in, and. And in infinite discernment, you must meet those eyes that never yet were duped. The God who who will see through the the veils of hypocrisy and all the concealments of formality. There will be no making yourself out to be better than you are before him. Charles Spurgeon. We cannot hide from God. You can hide from me. You can hide from each other intentions of the heart, thoughts, reasonings. You can hide those from each other and you can hide those from me and I can do the same. But we cannot do that with God. God knows our very inner thoughts. He knows the... Corners and crevices of our heart that nobody knows about. He knows why we do what we do, even though we don't think others do. God does. The Lord God of hosts is His name. God emphasized the point by emphasizing who it is that makes the point a God we should never trifle with. He is the God of all creation. He forms the mountains, he creates the wind. He is the God who is absolutely sovereign over man, who declares to man what his thought is. He is the God with all power over nature and makes the morning darkness. He is the God who rules above all, who treads the high places of the earth. He is God. We are not hiding from him. We're not fooling him. He knows. And he knew these people. He knew their hearts. He brought judgment upon them and they did not relent. They did not repent. They did not turn. They kept going in their sinful ways. If anything at all, this is a cry for us to turn back to God in our own insolent ways. Turn back to Him and allow Him to minister to you. Amen? Let's think on that as we pray. Father, we thank You today for Your grace and Your patience with us. Help us, Father, to not be insolent with you. Help us, Lord, to desire you in a real way. Help us to follow. Help us to to be pure of heart and blameless before you. Help us, Father, to turn from our wicked ways and turn to you. That judgment would not come upon us, but, Lord, that you would minister to us and lift us up. And Lord, we thank you for that. we give you praise. Help us to be willing to tell others about you. Help us to be willing to do that which you've called us to do. And Lord, we thank you for that. We give you praise in Jesus' mighty and matchless name. Amen. Thank you for listening to stepping stones of faith i pray that you find value in this content you can also find an audio podcast of this program on all the major podcasting platforms just type stepping stones of faith into the podcast search bar once again i'm pastor josh thank you for joining me today